You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. The New Testament reading this morning is Luke chapter 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and, his holy, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, our Old Testament reading and sermon text, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give strength to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe may be seated. Please pray with me. So Father, I ask now as we enter back into our study of First and Second Samuel, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see what you intended us to see in this text. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us not, not only doctrines to be believed, not only songs to be sung, but you've given us stories that reveal your character, that reveal your nature and reveal to us what it means to be your people in the world and how to live faithfully in it. So God, may we learn these things. May we marvel at who you are and God, may we tremble before your wrath. May we glory in your mercies. And Lord, may we faithfully seek to live under your law by faith in the work of Jesus for us. In your name we pray, amen. So I've decided that we are going to start over. Just joking. Um, I, uh, we have, um, for those of you who weren't here in the fall, we have been studying First Samuel now for a while. 
and uh, we have took time off for Advent, and now we're kicking back off with our study of First and Second Samuel. And I wanted to take this week to kind of re-engage us with the story as it's unfolded so far, um, and to take just a moment to look at it from 20,000 feet. Oftentimes in the scriptures, um, it is easy to lose the forest for the trees, to get so uh, caught into the particular details of uh, how the story proceeds that we then miss uh, the overarching themes that God himself is setting before us. And so while uh, the individual moments and the details of each chapter matter, and next week we're going to wade into um, wade into them in 2 Samuel. I wanted to take this week for us to consider where we've come and where we're going. Um, how has God revealed himself to us in 1 and 2 Samuel? What, should the, what are the things that we need to be paying attention to? Keeping the, the big themes in front of us um, helps us to identify um, when they come up over and over and over and over again as they do. So, um, I, I want to set before us again the whole framework of uh, the story of First and Second Samuel, um, remind you of how we got to the place that we've arrived here at the beginning of Second Samuel, um, and I want to use Hannah's prayer to do so. That's very intentional. First uh, and Second Samuel are actually organized for us. One of the ways it's organized um, is around three songs. Uh, the first song being Hannah's song here in First Samuel chapter two that we just read. Um, the second song being David's lament for Jonathan and Saul, or, or the song of the bow, um, which opens 2 Samuel. And then the final song is David looking back on his life, looking back at um, what's unfolded in First and 2 Samuel, and giving thanks there in 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 to 51. Um, keeping in mind that framework for First and 2 Samuel, it's very important that we remember where did we start but where were things? What was the condition of the world when 1 Samuel kicked off? Um, if you'll remember, 1 Samuel accords lines up with the very end of Judges. And at the end of Judges, uh, the summary description of what's going on with Israel, what's going on with this covenant people. The people who were saved from slavery out of Egypt. The people who had inherited um, enormous, glorious, almost unsearchably rich promises um, through the patriarchs, had held on to those promises, had held those promises up to God in their slavery. God had then delivered them, had brought them through the wilderness, um, had conquered the peoples of the land and given them the land. And not only had given them the land, he'd given him, them very clear instructions on how to worship him in that land and how to live faithfully under his word in that land that he had given them. Everything went downhill after that. The book of Judges, you have this repeated cycle again and again and again. That the people forget the promises of God. They forget the kindnesses of God. They forget the law of God and they begin to go after other gods. And so God hands them over to judgment. He hands them over ultimately again and again to slavery to the Philistines. Or other nations and other pagan gods around them. This cycle repeats over and over and over again until we arrive at the end of Judges. And there the author tells us that everyone is simply doing what is right in their own eyes. They had no king, and they refused to do what is right according to God's word, but instead lived however 
they wanted to live, doing whatever it is they wanted to do. So you had a people enslaved to sin and foreign gods. Politically, the nation is divided. It's in disarray. They're having to pay tribute and are um, uh, under the tyrannical rule of the Philistines around them. And there at the beginning of 1 Samuel, in what appears to be the darkest moment in Israel's history up to that moment, we find a woman named Hannah, a barren woman, and she prays. Everything that unfolds in First and Second Samuel is born of this barren woman crying out to God. Hannah, of course, is not just any barren woman. She is a type, a picture for us of the state that Israel itself is in. It is barren. It is not bearing fruit. There is no joy. She's mocked by um, the other wife of her husband, just as Israel is mocked, belittled by the surrounding nations. But she is beloved, beloved by her husband. And so she prays. And God answers that prayer by giving her a son, a son named Samuel. And Samuel is then given to the Lord, and God himself befriends him, blesses him, and begins to speak through him. And the beginning of the, of the sign that God is actually up to something new. This will not simply be a continuation of the cycle that unfolded in Judges. Um, is that we find in 1 Samuel 3 um, that, that it begins with the, with the chapter telling us um, that, that the word of the Lord was spare. It was, it was rare in those days. You could not find the word of God anywhere um, among the people of God in that day. And it ends with the word of God appearing again to Samuel at Shiloh. And then that word being delivered again to God's people through Samuel as he then begins um, to exercise his role as a, as a kind of judge, priest, and prophet. And we go from there to the arrival of Saul coming of David, the failures of Saul, and yet God's insistence on, on even then an opportunity to bless Saul as the one anointed with God's spirit is placed right in his household, right alongside Saul's rule. Um, and yet Saul drives the very presence of God carried by David out of, his, out of his palace, out of his household, and then David goes on the run. We come to the end of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel. Saul and Jonathan are dead. David has begun to rule. But a lot of things still hang in the balance. Things we'll begin to look at more closely next week. But how will this unfold for the nation? What's going to happen? So before we get there next week, I want to draw your attention to four themes. Just four. Um, it has been a few weeks since I've preached, so you might get several sermons right now, potentially four of them. Um, four themes that we've seen develop throughout First and Second Samuel, things that I think we should pay attention to, because I think the text has, has cried out to us to pay attention to them, and they're themes that are actually going to continue as we move through Second Samuel this spring. The first is 
the relationship, the varied relationships between fathers and sons. The book opens with Eli and his unfaithful, wicked sons. Yet God kills Eli's sons, but gives Eli a new son, an adopted son named Samuel. And so we have this father, not much is told to us about Eli's faithfulness. He seems to be kind of a middle-of-the-road prophet, middle-of-the-road priest. His sons, though, are wicked. They defile the worship of God. They take advantage of the people. So whatever happened there, they didn't have a very good father. Then Eli has given Samuel. And then Samuel, a faithful man, a man who loves the Lord, a man who holds fast to God's words, um, has sons. And the text tells us that his sons were unfaithful. Israel, if you'll remember, comes to Samuel and says, your sons aren't like you. They don't do what you do. Um, They're not faithful like you are. And so we want a king. The whole cry from Israel um, that, that God would give them a king comes because Samuel's sons are not faithful like Samuel is faithful. But Samuel then receives two new sons, Saul and David. The beginning, Saul is faithful. But ultimately, Saul falls away with his three sins. First, sinning against God by presuming um, to offer worship that was Samuel's to offer. Abusing his men, being willing to kill his son in pride. And ultimately, chasing David and refusing to kill God's enemies. Um, So they're um, declaring war on the priests of God, declaring war on the anointed of God, and at the same time refusing to go all the way in the warfare God had ordained for him against God's enemies. Um, We have then Saul with his sons, Jonathan and David. Um, Saul, an unfaithful man with a faithful son, Jonathan, um, you will look in vain for one negative comment about Jonathan um, in First and Second Samuel. It's actually remarkable and sad that Saul, um, this king that became tyrannical, this king that became consumed with envy and wickedness and evil, who lived in rebellion against God, raised a son who was faithful, raised a son who was brave, raised a son who loved the Lord's anointed and was humble enough um, not to claim the throne for himself, but acknowledged what God was doing in giving the throne to David. All of this will give way, really right off the bat in Second Samuel, um, to the relationship between David and his sons. Faithful sons and unfaithful sons. Um, a, a lot of it will give way to David um, and his um, early, early sins in Second Samuel of taking a multiple, of wi- a multiple a number of wives, and then the sons that are born of those wives um, then becoming the beginning of uh, his home, his household, his family being torn apart, and ultimately the kingdom itself being torn apart. There is something fundamental in the nature of the world about the relationship between fathers and sons. We're given almost no detail in First and Second Samuel about the kind of relationships um, that fathers should have with their sons. But what we're told on, in almost every chapter of these two books is that the relationship between fathers and sons 
matters as much as anything matters in all of the world. Um, the last two weeks, I've gotten to do weddings. And um, it struck me last week before the wedding, um, and I got to mention it during the wedding, is that we live in a very, very tumultuous time. Um, we live in a time in which um, things that are plainly good and beautiful and true are often derided and hated. Uh, real humility in, in, in that we submit to the law of God and the word of God is mocked as pride and things that are um, obvious, obviously evil, obviously crazy, obviously insane, are praised and celebrated and the, the world around us insists that we celebrate what ought not to be celebrated and that we keep our mouths shut about things which would obviously be celebrated. That we live in tumultuous times. We live when the most normal things in the world are contested. And this is an election year. And for the entirety of the year, um, people will be saying things like, as they do every four years, this election matters more than any election we've ever had in history. Uh, we're told and will be told again and again and again, either implicitly or explicitly, um, that the battle for our culture, the battle of our day, is a political battle. It's a battle fundamentally won at elections. It's fundamentally won with laws. It's fundamentally won with the right judges in the right place. And I'm not here to say that those things don't matter at all. I'm just here to tell you that they matter far less than the relationship between a husband and a wife and the relationship between a father and his sons. The greatest battle of our day is not fundamentally one that will be fought, won and fought in the courts or in the ballot boxes. It'll be fought in our homes. It'll be fought for fathers who love their wives, fathers who love their children, husbands and wives who persist in holding faithfully to the covenant they made before God. The most vital thing, the most important thing, and yes, I think one of the most beautiful things um, that matters as much as anything else matters in all of history is husbands and wives and fathers and sons. So again, First and Second Samuel doesn't give us a handbook on fatherhood. But what it tells us again and again and again is it matters. It matters as much as anything matters. And in First and Second Samuel, it matters both with regards to politics and, regards, uh, and it matters with regards to worship. When fathers don't raise faithful sons, the worship of God's people suffers and eventually dies. When fathers don't raise godly sons, eventually the rulers of our day rebel against the laws of God and become tyrants. And so, point number one, a major theme that we'll continue to see pick up its head again and again and again in 2 Samuel with David and his sons, his fathers and sons. Fathers, of all the things you do, your work matters. Um, your relationship with your neighbors matters. Your ability to think clearly 
about the social issues of our day, the ethical issues of our day, the moral and political issues of our day, with all of that matters. But I would call you, above everything else, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Fathers, love your children. Raise them up in the discipline, the admonition of the Lord, to know him, to love him, to treasure his word above all things. The second theme that we see throughout First and Second Samuel is we find a God who makes war. Uh, we looked this week in our Doctrine and Drinks class um, at the uh, mediation of Christ. We spent some time in the Westminster Confession of Faith, particularly the Westminster Larger Catechism, where it declares to us how God, um, how God is medi- um, Jesus mediates uh, this new covenant to his people. And he does so as a prophet, he does so as a priest, and he does so as a king. And in that kingly office, he makes war on all his enemies. We stop for a moment on Wednesday night and just consider how uncomfortable it is. And yet it is the grounds of understanding the full range of what God is up to in the gospel. If you remember early on in 1 Samuel, Israel suffers a terrible, terrible defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Um, After this defeat, uh, God himself does not cause Israel to then go into exile, um, which is the promised judgment that would come if they um, forgot their God or was unfaithful to God's covenant. Instead, God himself substitutes himself for Israel, and the ark itself is taken into exile um, by the Philistines. And there they place um, the covenant, uh, the the ark of the covenant, before um, the idol of their God. And that idol is destroyed. It's one of my favorite scenes in the entire Bible. His hands are cut off. And ultimately, his head is cut off. As he falls before the presence of Yahweh. And then what ensues in in the following chapter um, is that that city decides, well, we've got to get rid um, of this Ark of the Covenant, this God. We don't want him in our city. So they send him to the next city, and the next city, and the next city, um, traveling all over Philistines, like God went on tour. It's the divine tour of whatever year B.C. Um, and everywhere he went, he, he brought destruction and disease on the enemies of God. Um, that, that here is Israel. We, we often think um, that we have to fight for God, that Israel has to fight for God, that, that God needs a defender. Um, here is Israel, um, in her unfaithfulness, and so God doesn't let them just kind of pass, he doesn't just pass over that unfaithfulness <coughs> and thereby defeat Philistines. No, he, he lets them suffer defeat, a terrible defeat. A, a defeat that leads ultimately, um, based on the text, the destruction of the tabernacle, the entire sacrificial system stops. Um, uh, the priests are dead, um, the, the, the priestly heirs are dead, um, and yet God himself will not let his enemies rest, but instead goes from city to city to city, bringing a plague, bringing tumors, bringing destruction to the enemies of God. It's become popular in our day, particularly among evangelical Christians, to spend an enormous amount of time just talking about the love of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. 
um, to, to try to set before the people of God and try to set before the world as an appealing a, a, a picture as we can. Um, but I don't even think it's really about appealing. It's about trying to set um, before this world a God who is non-threatening, a, a God who's not difficult, a God that no one should really be afraid of, um, to set before all of this world and our culture and our neighbors and our city a God that is likable. But the God of Scripture, oh, he, he deserves to be loved and treasured and worshipped and feared. He is good, he is gracious, and he is merciful. But he also promises horrible things on those who refuse his mercy. We worship a God who is to be trembled before. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the mercy of God is precious beyond words. But it is precious beyond words because it allows a way of escape, a way of finding mercy and righteousness and forgiveness and freedom and joy in escape from the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the terror of God. That God himself comes and makes a way that we might find mercy, that we might receive forgiveness, that we might be um, adopted by the God of the universe and made his heirs, sons and daughters of the living God. But do not miss why this is vital. It's not merely because you're broken. It's not merely because, um, because you might feel a little bit lost in our modern age. Um, it's not simply because um, you need some sort of psychological boost. It is because the wrath of God against sin and death is certain. We serve a God who will not let sin and death reign forever. We worship a God, we sing to a God. Because he has shown us mercy and saved us from slavery to sin, which leads to death and the wrath of God forever and ever and ever. So we see in the book of Samuel, God working sovereignly, working in his mercy and in his grace but also a God who makes war. Do not miss the wrath of God because you want God to simply be pleasant. You diminish the mercy of God when you diminish the wrath of God. You treat his kindness. You portray to unbelieving neighbors and friends, a small kindness. When God is merely a therapeutic God here to make us all feel better. We must see the terror of God's wrath, the terror of what it would mean to be a people against whom God has declared war in order to see the gravity, the glory, the joy of his mercy. And so the second theme we see, we see first fathers and sons. And two, we see a God 
who works to establish his mercy, even in the midst of and at the exact same time that he declares war on his enemies. Third, God prepares David through suffering. One of the contrasts that that we're to see, I I believe, between David and Saul, there's a number of them. Um, Most importantly, we'll see in 2 Samuel the difference in the response, the responses we see from David and Saul um, when they are called out for their sin. Remember, Saul made excuses. David will confess his sins and ask for mercy. But another thing that we see is that Saul is just out looking for an ox, and next thing he knows, he's king. There's no preparatory phase. There's no extended period of suffering or learning wisdom or learning um, how to be complete through suffering. We just have a son looking for oxen, then quite literally thrust into the role of king. David, well, his story is a little bit different, isn't it? David is out happily tending the sheep. And then a man named Samuel shows up and anoints him and says that you're going to be king. Next, David fights a giant. Everything seems to be going swimmingly. Um, he's in Saul's court. He's leader of Saul's army. Um, he's serving faithfully at the side of Saul, um, winning Saul's battles for him, um, bringing Saul peace when he's uh, knowing incredible turmoil. And the next thing he knows, this man that he's serving faithfully is throwing spears at him and trying to kill him. He's driven from the house that he'd served in. He's driven from his best friend. And he lives basically on the run for the rest of 1 Samuel. Um, He's on the run from Saul. He's on the run from spies for Saul. Um, Anywhere he goes where he's offered comfort, uh, Saul shows up and kills everybody. I I mean, here's a man who, who has received the apparent blessing and anointing of God to be king, to rule. He's received the kindness of God. And everything that's happened since then would lead you to say, oh God, you just keep your kindness. (laughs) But this is how God works to prepare for himself a king. If you remember, it was said of Jesus that Jesus was made perfect or complete. He was made ready by what he suffered. Um, That is, I I believe, a very intentional reference back to David. David is being made ready. Um, Ready, actually, for the very moment we're going to step into next week. Being made ready to be patient, to to be gentle with his enemies when he can be. Um, You'll remember that he had multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but restrained his hand the one time that he almost just flew off the handle and killed Um, killed a man, Um, he was held back by that man's wife. David learned gentleness, when to be gentle, when to attack and when to be harsh, when to make justice swift and when to be kind. Um, There was a kind of wisdom gained by David um, that, that could not be learned any other way and Saul completely failed to learn. David learned by what he suffered. And this was not the wrath of God. It was not the judgment of God. It wasn't punishment from God. 
It was the way of God with men to make them whole, to make them wiser, to make them mature. I remember years ago, we took our children up to Mount Falcon and it was the fall and it was right, this might have been the first morning, it was cold and it was cold. It was really cold. Um, and our kids were small, and we were trying to teach our kids about wearing coats. And Hayes had decided that morning, quite stubbornly, I'm not wearing a coat. But son, it's cold and we're going outside. I don't care. I don't need a coat. Awesome. So we go to Mount Falcon, and we're hiking, and it's cold. What happens almost immediately? Hayes begins whining about how cold he is and how he wishes he had a coat, to which I said, that's really interesting. So we keep walking. Hayes then insists that he wants to be carried. I don't want to carry him. He sits down about every 30 feet, kind of bawling up and saying, I don't really want to walk anymore. It's too cold. I said, come on, son, cheerfully. Wasn't angry, wasn't yelling, wasn't doing that. Just, no, oh, come on, we got to keep going. It's really great up here. There's a burned-out mansion. I don't understand why people like Mount Falcons. It's just, well, there used to be a house here. Um, So we kept going, made it all the way up, made it all the way back. And I remember having a conversation uh, with him and with my wife. He was small, so it was kind of hard to have a conversation. And um, the goal there wasn't to punish him. The goal there wasn't um, to make, it wasn't even ultimately to make him think twice about not bringing a coat when it's cold. In the end, it was like, this is not going to kill you. You're not going to get sick. It's not really that cold. I mean, it's cold, but it is that you're going to learn something by what you suffered. And this is just a long walk in the cold. Um, Oftentimes, God puts us in similar situations. He doesn't drive us from our homes, drive us from our companies, drive us um, from the people we're serving and make us live in the wilderness and be chased for our lives and be surrounded by um, a really rough neck crew like David was. But he does put us in hard times. He does maybe give us seasons of less sleep than we would want. Coming out of one of those. He maybe gives us a time when it's just the job isn't going anywhere. It's just hard. It's not enjoyable. It's not exciting. It's just difficult. Or a season where your baby isn't sleeping. (laughs) Those are hard. Depending on how long they go. Whatever it is, he he brings us often to difficult seasons, hard seasons, seasons that we would be tempted in the moment to ask where God might be. What what are you doing, God? I I thought thought you you loved me. I thought you wanted to take care of me. I thought you wanted to help me. We find ourselves sitting on a log about halfway up Mount Falcon, really ticked. Dad, just carry me. Give me your coat. God, carry me. God, make this go away. He didn't want to, by the way, he didn't want to walk forward or back. He wanted me to go get the car, drive it on the trail, and pick him up. That's what he kept asking. He's like, nope, that would be illegal. But we often find ourselves in those kinds of seasons having the same reaction that a kid does when he's cold, Maybe a little gripey, and he's stuck on the side of a trail on Mount Falcon. But we miss how it is that God works again and again 
and again and again, and particularly how God worked with David. Um, it, it is this discipline, this training, this suffering that David goes through through the vast majority of 1 Samuel it's going to lead him to make some very savvy, very wise moves in 2 Samuel 3 and 4. Moves that are actually going to save the kingdom. Moves that are actually going to unite the kingdom of Israel. And I do believe there's a kind of patience that was sown into David, um, a kind of wisdom and savvy, political savvy that was sown into David, a willingness to see, and I think that's testified to by his song about Saul and Jonathan, um, to testify to even if times are difficult, even if things don't make sense, even if this man is acting very obviously in sin and out of envy, I'm still going to honor the hand of God. I'm still going to honor the sovereign God who is working in the midst of all of it. He learned patience. And things are going to get hard for David again somewhat due in part to his own sin, but some just because it's hard. This is what God does. Parents, your kids should have hard times. One of the great gifts of being a parent is not that you protect them from all difficulties. It's that you're walking alongside them through all of those difficulties. Um, You should rejoice when hard times come for your kid. Because now God has given you an opportunity to parent, to instill wisdom. And in suffering, God does not declare, often is not declaring his displeasure, but his training and his discipline and his bringing this child and us to completion, to maturity, to preparation. So the third theme is that God prepares us through suffering. He prepares us to rule. He prepares us to serve. He prepares us for joys that we can't imagine now. But for whatever reason in God's design, suffering is often the precursor, the necessary precursor, the training we need to to, to fully embrace and to partake in the joy that God has promised us. The last thing, I want to draw your attention to, and perhaps the most obvious thing, is that First and Second Samuel demonstrate a sovereign and glorious God who draws straight with crooked lines. Um, he takes this song sung by Hannah, this song that is a, is a prophecy about all that God is about to do. It's a testimony to the character of God. Um, It testifies to the power of God, the sovereign and glorious power of God. Listen again to this verse. Um, The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Um, Here is a testimony to a God who is sovereignly directing history. Um, It may oftentimes feel completely random. Like God today decided to just roll the dice. But he is never just rolling the dice. He is always working purposefully, intentionally, powerfully to bring about his purposes. He raises up Saul and it appears that like, man, he just got this one wrong. But he didn't. 
He's directing the history of Israel and the rulers of Israel um, in order to perfectly, at the right time, raise up a king named David who would be for us um, the, the type, the shadow, the seed from whom Jesus himself would come. We turn to 1 Samuel 2 and we find a woman um, in the midst of the darkness singing about the promises of God and the character of God and the glory of God. God draws straight. He takes us exactly where he wants us to go. But the lines to get there often feel crooked and squiggly. But this is the sovereign and glorious God. God who teaches and trains and disciplines. A God who makes war. But also a God who redeems and rescues and raises up and casts down. A God who reigns and will reign forever over all the nations of the earth, including this one. Our God loves to draw straight with crooked lines. Let's pray and prepare for communion.